Well, I'm back. So <laughs> here we are. Well, it's for those of you who have, and there's only one in here right now, Andy, who have taken my place during the last several weeks. That applause was not because they did not enjoy you. They enjoyed the vacation that you ably yeah. gave to them. Yes, Amen. See, that was the, why they were applauding, brother. So you can remember that. <clears throat> there was a reason for the applaud. I had a friend years ago, Arthur Jones, and he would play the harmonica at First Baptist Church, and he would tell us, oh, they clap for me every time I finish. I said, Arthur, they were clapping because you were finishing. <laughs> so I understand the clapping. Uh, as we begin this morning, I do want to say so, so, so much thank you to Andy Faxton, to Ronald Litano, and to Evan May. <clears throat> really, I do. It's, I love teaching, and I'm the type of person who rarely ever wants to teach anybody anything or to express my opinion to people uh, <laughs> until I get up here. But occasionally, it's good for Gene and me to be away for your benefit. You need a break. And so once in a while, I can do that now in a better way. So every other month I'm going to be gone five. No, uh, I can do that with a better heart nowadays because the Lord has raised up Andy to be one of the men who would be teaching the class and also Ronald to be one of the men. It's not that Evan isn't, but Evan also teaches the youth. And of course, Keith being the senior pastor has a whole lot of other things on his mind in the morning. So so I do want to appreciate the Lord's ministry there and mercy. Not that this is a drain for me, but occasionally I do need to have someone to take the place in here. So thank you so much for being here. This morning we're continuing in Matthew. We're in chapter 21, and I think we're going verses 18 to 22. I think that's what we're going to do this morning. One of the benefits of having other men teach the class is that they kind of have to stay on schedule. So the 10 verses or 20 verses that they are, they are teaching kind of have to get done because they won't be returning maybe the next week. And it's not that I make that obligation upon them. I think that's just the nature of the beast. However, I'm the one, if I am teaching every Sunday, I don't have that obligation. So if I feel the Holy Spirit wants to take all the time to discuss one verse, I have a freedom for that because I'm not looking for someone else to come behind me next week and do the next set of verses. So that gives me the privilege of taking my time and uh, giving me the excuse for not covering all that I have in my notes. It's not that I'm too wordy or have too many things to say. It's just that there is so much to say. Amen. <clears throat> so thank you for being here. Father, Father, what can we say? Father, what condescension that you have decided to do to create us and then to 
send the Son to recreate us. Father, what a, an amazing revelation of your grace it is to us that anything and everything and every aspect of everything that you do and you say is a taking to yourself properties, characteristics, which are not eternal in you, but you have taken them to yourself in order to minister to us. Father, no wonder the apostle says, see what love the Father has bestowed and poured, lavished upon us, that we, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. Fathers, we listen to your word, not only this morning, but every time we listen to it, preached, shared, or read. Father, would you, by your spirit, give us an overwhelming revelation, understanding, experience, and amazement of your condescension of your care, of your patience, of your forbearance, of your kindness, of your faithfulness, of your gentleness. So, Father, as we interact with others, Father, we may, having experienced this from you, we may relate to others similarly. Because, Father, we know that in this way, your love is being manifested in us. So, Father, as we open your word this morning, we know that you will bless it, but we ask you to do so because you tell us. Not to assume it, but to ask it. For it's your great joy to give us all things in Christ. And in Jesus' name, Father, we give you great thanks. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're continuing, as I said, in Matthew 21, verses 18 to 22. Fudge is among us again. Where you at, Fudge? She's back. Fage. Everybody knows Fage? She's back. Good to see you. Yes, y'all may clap. Good. It's good to see you. And it's also good to see... Uh, what's your name again? Anna Chatelaine. You see what happens when I've been away for a little bit? It's good to see Anna Chatelaine back. Good to see you back with us. Yes, you may appreciate Anna is back. Yes, we may do that. All right. <clears throat> so let's get going. <clears throat> Last week, Ronald shared with us what is typically, typically called Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And as Jesus, you remember, entered the city, he did so in such a way, and Ronald explained this, that the crowds saw in him and in the way that he entered because of the prophecies that he was entering as the king who had come to deliver them in their minds from Roman rule. 
And so this is what they wanted. This is what they hoped for. Finally, freedom and deliverance from the bondage of Roman rule. This is what they had hoped for. Finally, once again, we are going to be a people who experience the political freedom to become an independent nation of our own and not be dominated by other cultures. This is what they had in mind. And we understand that and actually don't blame them for it. But you see, Jesus had indeed entered Jerusalem as their delivering king, you see. But Rome was not the enemy. He had indeed entered as the king who would conquer and deliver. But it wasn't for conquering and delivering of anything of this particular world system in and of itself. He had entered to destroy the works of of Satan. You remember what John says in 1 John 3 8, and it's one of those verses that if you don't know it, you need to know it. For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose. 1 John 3 8. I'm not sure if it's in your notes, it may be at a different location. Sometimes my mind jumps ahead. For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the enemy. And so Satan was the enemy. And how had Satan become the enemy of mankind? How had he become God's enemy through us? He gained control and ascendancy and rule over mankind. How? Through Adam's sin. So that when Adam sinned in Genesis 3, 6, he handed effectively, he handed over the reign and rule of God, which God had given to Adam to exercise. Fill the earth. Take dominion over the earth. Rule. Remember those mandates. And he effectively, in his sin, handed that right, if you would, to Satan. And we see that in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. And as a result of Adam's sin, Satan became what Paul calls the God of this world. Again, another very significant scripture for you and me to know. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world. And so what is happening here is this, that Jesus has entered Jerusalem to deliver his people, but not to deliver his people per se from any Roman or political rule, but to deliver them from the rule of Satan over their lives. And so when Adam sinned, you remember in Genesis, and we always, and you're right, Phil, we always have to go back to Genesis because everything of the Word of God is built on the structure of Genesis. We go back to Genesis, and when Adam sinned, you remember in Genesis 3.15, what does Yahweh promise? What does Yahweh, the Lord, what does the Lord promise in Genesis 3.15? He says, I'm sending the seed of the woman. You remember that? A deliverer. And how will this deliverer deliver his people? Well, he will be wounded as to his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent. 
remember that in Genesis 3.15. And so how will this deliverer crush the head of the serpent? How will he deliver his people? Well, the prototype of that or the beginning revelation of that is in Genesis 3.21, where after the man and the woman, you remember, sin and they're hiding behind the asparagus bushes. This is why we shouldn't eat things like asparagus, but whatever. And so as they are, I don't know whether asparagus have bushes, do they? And so they're hiding behind the bushes and they had made fig leaves for themselves to cover their own sin, their own work of trying to provide for themselves an acceptability to God. But what does the Lord do? He covers them with the skin of an animal. Now, it doesn't say this in Genesis 3.21, but what does that presuppose? Donnie Bourgeois hunts, and I think he has skinned a few animals, haven't you? When you skin an animal, what is happening? Blood is being what? Shed. Can an animal be skinned without blood being shed? It's not happening. And so how does this deliver of 315, the seed of the woman, going to deliver God's people? He's going to deliver them through the shedding of the blood. So we see all of that again in Genesis. That's where it's all put together and presented to us. Therefore, you see, from the very beginning of humanity's history after the fall, And we need to see these episodes in Matthew in a much larger context than just this is what is happening on that day to Jesus with the Pharisees and the priests and so on. We need to have a much larger scope. And that's why I will always do a large painting before I get to the scripture. And we may never get to the scripture, but at least we have a large painting of it. And so... It means from the very beginning of man's history after the fall. When is that? Genesis 3, 6 is the fall. And he ate. Genesis 3, 7 begins the history of man after the fall. Everything about that history after the fall is God's intention has always been to bring his people back to himself through the sacrificial work of the Son, which is to be received by faith and not by the work of man. Now, that's the basis. Ever since the fall, God being already prepared institutes immediately the redemptive plan. And that redemptive plan is that Yahweh himself in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God will take to himself a human soul and a human body and a human nature. And he himself will pay the full, final, and forever price of man's rebellion. And that price, that redemptive work, is God's work that saves his people, which salvation is received by his people on the basis of God's gift of faith. So what verse did I just quote? Ephesians Now, if you didn't get everything I just said, you're just going to have to go and get the tape and, and listen to it. But that's extremely important because our entire standing with God, our entire forgiveness, our entire justification before God. And this is the point that Jesus was making to the Pharisees and the priests, which point they had opposed in their 
manipulation and misuse of God's law and the sacrifices. The point was that God saves. He saves his people according to his eternal decree and his will. And that salvation which is given to his people, which is called in John 3, 3, being born again, is received by those people whom he has saved. And it is received by faith. Do we get that? So the key here, if you would, is that all of God's work for us and on our behalf in Christ is an accomplished work applied to us in a saving way and then given to us on the basis of God giving us at the same time of giving us our salvation is giving us the faith with which we will want to and will be able to and will in fact say yes to Jesus. Can you say amen? Amen. You see, that means that the burden is upon God, if you would. But he gives us the responsibility to respond in faith as a gift of faith, which when he gives it to us, it overcomes our natural sin deadness in Adam So that we will then want to be saved and that we will be saved because we will call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So the work is God's work. It is called in the Bible, my salvation. It isn't called in the Bible, if you do something first, then I will save you salvation. Now, this is important. Because it hinges upon God's glory. And this is the point that the leadership of Israel had misused and dis, uh, you know, abused and turned around and made it the opposite. And so God's way of delivering his people has always been through the message of God's grace. The message of God's grace. You see, when God clothed the man and the woman, you remember what he did. In Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. Genesis 3, 7, and the man and the woman saw that they were, what, naked, so they hid themselves and tried to cover themselves. And then in Genesis 3, 8, God is walking around in the garden in the cool of the evening. And then the first words, at least in my mind, of the gospel are these. And this is the word of God that is always being proclaimed to his people. Adam, meaning what? Humanity. My people. My people. Where are you? Where are you? Now, does God know? How many of you as parents knew where your child was hiding, but you were saying, where are you, little Johnny? How many of you have ever done that? A little Mary. Haven't we done that? And we're doing it to elicit something 
from the child. Not to learn something that we don't know. That's the first call of the gospel. Where are you? And that call of the gospel continues. And at Sinai, God gives them the law and the covenant in the old covenant and the sacrificial system. The law being the revelation of the moral character of God to be obeyed and the sacrificial system for the forgiveness of sin when the Israelite did not obey. That's the gospel or the message of the gospel of God's grace in the Old Testament. The Old Covenant, the Old Mosaic system is the gospel in the Old Testament that begins to prefigure through all of its activities and commands the gospel that will be enunciated clearly and emphatically and finally in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So what this means is that all the rituals of the old covenant system, all of the sacrificial activities were effective only because they looked to being replaced by the permanent covenant. They were looking forward to something. And those Israelites who sinned and realized that they sinned and brought their sacrifices to the priests and the shedding of the blood, they did so because they had faith in Yahweh's promise to forgive. When I see the blood, I will pass over. Remember, the life is in the blood in Leviticus 17. The life is in the blood. And so the shedding of blood brings forgiveness of sin. And so they look forward to this promise as enunciated by Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. All of us have heard this. Remember Jeremiah is, God has given this promise to Jeremiah at the end of the history of Judah before the Babylonian captivity. So this is a promise that is given right before Judah is overcome and destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. He said, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, the covenant. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and and I will remember their sins no more. So every animal that died prefigured Christ. Every ritual that they went through prefigured the person and work of Christ. Now that's what they had. And so all of these requirements, and I go back again and give us this so we can bring it up to date and apply it to Matthew. All of these requirements, all of these activities, all of this work that is happening in the old covenant, all of their hope were to be entered into by faith. The same kind of faith that we are to exercise today as God's gift was the same faith that God gave to his people then to exercise for the forgiveness of their sin and for the maintenance of their nation as God's people. It wasn't a different faith activity. It wasn't a different faith system. It was the same being worked out in a different way, mechanically, if you would, in the old as in the new. So depending upon the integrity and the power of God's promise to forgive and restore their life to him, their faith was what God used 
to bring about forgiveness of sin. So they sacrifice an animal believing God will hear me and will receive this shedding of the blood. So my sins are forgiven and I can be maintained as a child of God. But you remember Israel flubbed it. They didn't, what word don't want, they didn't, uh, can't find my word, there it goes, fulfill God's purpose in them. You know, when you read, for instance, Hosea 9.10, issue is called God's fig tree. God's fig tree. Why? Because God created Israel to be a planting, the planting of the Lord in Isaiah, so that when all the nations see this very peculiar tree of righteousness in the nation of Israel, and they see the effect of of the faith of these people in their God. And they see the effect of the work of that their God in them to protect them and to provide for them and etc. The fruit of their obedience overflowing so that the nations will see this and desire to know this God as their own. This is the way that God had purposed that Israel would be a, an evangelistic, if you would, nation to the world, drawing others to himself through the fruit of their obedience. And so the fig tree is the figure of that, if you would. But you know, as we said, Israel failed in that. And so, by the time Jesus enters Jerusalem... The Jewish leaders were preaching a different gospel. They were preaching a different gospel. Listen to what Paul says about a gospel that is different than the gospel that is preached in the Lord Jesus. He says, let that person, those people who preach a different gospel, he calls it another gospel, but it's not really enough. You know, it's, it's a different gospel. He said, let them what? Be damned to hell. Anathema. What does anathema mean? May you go to hell. And then he says, oh, did you not understand what I said in verse 9? He said, let me repeat myself. People who preach a gospel that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, go to hell. And you say, my word, my word, that's not a very kind thing to say. It's not kind maybe to the people, but it's kind to the truth. And so this is how important this is. Why? Because a different gospel will bind people to Satan. And Satan uses a different gospel to keep us bound to sin. And so when we listen, for instance, to television preachers or to radio preachers or to read books, you know, there are many, I don't know how many, but there are some in this church that you don't do well in discerning. There was a book called, what was that book where the, the man went out in the, in the wilderness and he sat in a, in a shack? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But if you read the shack, I don't have a problem with you reading the shack. And if you found anything redemptive in that and good in that and godly in that and exhilarating in that, and you better be careful. Because you see, it was a book from hell that presents a different God. Oh, but it was so whatever. Well, of course it was. Because the enemy always gives us the opportunity of swallowing a lie 
through the tasty mortals of this world, doesn't he? Exactly. So we need to be discerning what are these men preaching? What are they uh, manifesting? What is the basis of the of the message that they are giving to us. Is it something of and about and for me primarily? Or is it something of and about and for God primarily? And we have to be careful what we're listening to. And so, by the time Jesus enters the temple, he's entering at a time when the Jewish leadership through their teachings and their practices and their demands, had corrupted the message of the gospel into another gospel. And this is a context of verses 18 to 22. Again, I share that with you so we can bring up to date our own thinking and understanding here. In the morning, as Jesus was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. Underline that, only leaves, nothing on it, only leaves. There's the key. So he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. So he's coming into Jerusalem, and he sees a fig tree, and he sees leaves on it. The leaves were indicative, or supposed to be indicative, of fruit-bearing. And so when he gets to the tree, there ain't no fruit. There's no fruit on it. And so Jesus curses the tree. Oh, my word. Man, why don't you throw another tantrum fit? I mean, come on, give it a chance. Why does he do that? Because you see, remember, the fig tree is a picture of Israel. And so he uses this barren fig tree that was supposed to have been given off the fruit that was indicative of the presence and power and grace, etc., of God to the nations. It was giving away, it was giving off or producing bad fruit or no fruit of righteousness. It was producing the fruit of unrighteousness. This is what Israel was doing in those days. And so in cursing the tree, what is Jesus saying? Israel as my planting is over. It's finished. I'm going to be planting another tree. Another tree. And so, he says, Israel's ability to declare God's self-revelation to the world is finished. And in doing this, he's really is saying he has come to do what Jeremiah 31 has said. I have come to fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy. And what is that? Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. What is it? In those days, I will what? Do you remember we just read it? I will what? Establish a new covenant with you. Remember what Jesus said on the night of his betrayal in Luke twenty-two twenty. This is the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. What new covenant? The new covenant that would replace the old. Now, we don't have the time this morning to go into the reasons for replacing it. But the old covenant, begun in Genesis 3-7, in my mind, traveling all the way through 
to the death of Jesus, the old covenant was always a temporary covenant where God was keeping his people forgiven and maintained and protected, as we see in Galatians 3, until the arrival of him who would completely fulfill all the requirements and mandates of God's covenant, of God's revelation of his image. So Jesus came to fulfill that. The old covenant was always given as a temporary to be fulfilled and to be completed in the new. So when the disciples saw this, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? You see, they were astonished. How can this happen? Jesus, can you imagine? Do you think anyone in the disciples asked, I wonder why Jesus did that? I wonder why Jesus did that? Well, they don't understand. They don't have the revelation yet. But they were amazed. They were astonished. But actually, you see, Jesus' reply is more astonishing than, look at that, the fig tree dies. Man. Now, what's on the minds of some of these people? What do you think? I wonder if I can do that. Wow. If Jesus did it, we should be able to do it. We've heard that, haven't we? Well, the answer to that is what? Both yes and no. Jesus did it because he was being led by the Holy Spirit to do it, not because he just wanted to do it. So anything that we're being led by the Holy Spirit to do, we can do by faith. Amen? And all of that will always be according to the word. So he withered the tree. But listen to Jesus' answer in verse 21. He answered and then said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. Man, we can cast down mountains and move mountains around. In the Greek, the word this is accentuated. If you say to this mountain, what mountain? Was he talking about a physical mountain or was he talking about the mountain of obligation, the mountain of bad teaching, the mountain of obstructions that had been placed on the people through the false teachings of the Pharisees. Remember, you can do it to the fig tree and you can do it to this mountain. The fig tree as the temple were symbols, if you would, of the right worship of God. And when the right and true worship of God, which you see in John 4, remember, God is looking for those who worship him both, what, in truth and in spirit and in truth. And when that is not there, that mountain of false worship can be and should be removed and rebuked and replaced by the truth. You can remove this mountain. The mountain of man's works that fail to produce the fruit of righteousness. He says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. And so you remember, the disciples in Matthew 28 are given the mandate. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. 
Go you, therefore, into all the world, making disciples, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, what I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Remember that. And so, a primary responsibility of each one of us in the church is this. Not only obviously to know God, but to know God in a way that is correct and accurate. To know God in a way that we can explain to others. To know God in a way that we can discern false teaching. To know God in a way that when we hear false teaching, we will be led by the Spirit in the manner and attitude of our sharing to correct the false teaching. That's what we're called to do. And so as we see in myself, if I see something that is not of the true gospel, I must deal with it. If we see it in one another, we must what? Deal with it in one another, not belligerently, but in a way that is hopefully able to be received by the person and the Holy Spirit ministers correction to that person. It's extremely important how we live. Are we living by faith? How do you know? We're all fig trees, aren't we? Go figure. And that was a frankism. It didn't work, you see. I'm, I, you know, whatever. And as fig trees, we're mandated to do this. To regularly, purposefully, carefully inspect ourselves. Inspect our thoughts inspect our attitudes, inspect our time with God, inspect our relationships with one another, etc., etc. To be sure, being led by the Spirit, that we are producing the figs that God has designed that we should bear for His glory. So this morning as we leave, let's not leave just, wow, man, we have power to do this and that. The power of God primarily in our lives is for self-revelation, self-purification, self-building up, so that in that we are then able to be those people whom when the world sees us, they see Jesus in us and are drawn to him. Because remember what Jesus said in John thirteen thirty four, I think it is. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that your fig tree is producing the fruit of love. So let's be careful. Let's not fall for false teaching. But also let's remember this. There's not a person in this church There's not a person in the church, including the elders or anyone, who has absolute, correct, pure teaching. Every one of us, as Paul says, sees in a mirror darkly. We we know in part. Remember in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 9 and 12. Paul says, I don't have it all. So let us strive to know 
Let us be humble to receive. And let us be available to share with others. Amen. So next week we'll go verse 23 to wherever we'll wind up. Thank you.